right, man, it's a big day uh, for Clearview. We have a great event tonight at 3 o'clock, so I sure hope you get a chance to, to be here for that. I wanted to, to, to uh, say thanks for, for one thing. Uh, uh, before I get to that, let me say this to you. Um, I, I want you to be praying for me this week, uh, specifically every year, and I've done this for uh, a long, long time, but every year I tend to go away in, in December and, and try to forecast the, the next, you know, half year or more of sermon work and and I don't write the sermons, of course, but, but it's more of topics, and it really helps us to think through how to, how to work that into the congregation on different ways beyond Sunday morning, and I'm doing that this, this next, this next um, week, and so uh, be praying for me, because that's a heavy mental time where I'm really going down deep into some of that stuff, so if you would be praying for me. Now, I want to show you uh, this image here of a box. So let me tell you what's really cool. Uh, this week... I don't know who you are. I don't know who these people are in our congregation, okay? But uh, I received a box um, for my birthday. My birthday's in December, and, and uh, there was this anonymous box. And, and it's from uh, a, a group of people who are anonymous. And it's more than one. I was told it was a group of people. And here's what it, it is. I don't know how many of you that this would apply to, and I don't know who all is involved in this, but I can tell you it is hands down the coolest gift I've ever been given in, in all 30-something years of ministry. And here's what these people did. They went, and it's, I turned 50, and so there are 50 cards in there, and they were specific statements uh, about me. So if I did not have an ego, I've got one now. Uh, because, because let me tell you, man, the spe- I mean, I may have cried a little. I've read through it, I've read through it uh, more than once, all 50. And I thought, you know, I think I'm going to read through these every day for the rest of my life. Um, because it's fascinating. Um, and, and, you know, and, I, and I, 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 first of all, I just want to say, uh, and, and they took this hymn, um, uh, that it's, it's my all-time favorite hymn, which is Be Thou My Vision. And, and they, they, they put it in this box and and they won for each day of, or each year of my life. And, and um, but I would say, you know, it was, it was super meaningful to me because um, I, I always try to teach my boys. Um, the other day, Tucker uh, was saying how much he, uh, Emma, one of our, our re- residents, was teaching in students. And he said, Dad, I really love when Miss Emma, uh, she, when she teaches. And, and I said, did you tell her? And he said, I actually did, Dad. And I'm like, Good, because I, I'm, I really believe that most of us um, never find a way to get encouragement from our hearts to our mouths or to our fingertips uh, to text somebody. And I want my boys to be good at vocalizing that. And so however many of y'all were involved in that, um, that is, it is beyond neat. Uh, and so it meant a ton to me. And so thank you so much. Um, in that project. That was stellar. All right, so let's pray now, and let's get into the Word of God, okay? God, we slow our lives down on a Sunday right here in Cool Springs when people from even other states are driving up the interstate to get to a mall or 
people have gotten up today and with the frantic nature of Christmas, we stop our lives to look at the Word of God and what it says to us. And, and so I pray that as we read the Scriptures, we know the Scriptures always read us. And I pray that whatever needs to be heard or done or said from your word today, whatever part of that any man or woman in here needs to grab onto, that you would use it and let it grab onto them. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in this series called Christmas in His Name. And we're, if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9 in a minute. And, and that's, it's, it's a very famous prophecy from Isaiah. You know, um, Christmas is, is a great time. I mean, obviously, it, it is a, a really awesome time. It is a time where it's, it's, it's one of, I don't, I don't know anybody that doesn't like Christmas. I mean, it may, some of you just flip out over it, but I, I don't know that I've ever met anybody that hated Christmas. It's just a neat time of life. But I, I do ask you this. I wonder, have you ever thought, have you ever been able to push through mentally have you ever been able to push through all the glory and the grandeur and the lights? And I mean, evidently, I've lived in Franklin a long time. There's a new trend, like people are hanging things from trees this year. Have you noticed like snowballs in trees? And there's all kinds of things in trees that are really cool, like lighted stuff. And I'm like, you got need like a boom truck to get up into there. I mean, there's Christmas is neat. You can get so lost in all the decorations. But I, I want to ask you, have you ever been able to push through that and actually understand even though Christmas is beautiful, why there had to be one? It, it's, it's really different, you know, when you, it's, it's kind of in the same line of thinking of why you have interstates. You know, you drive on interstates every day, right? Do you know why you had to have interstates? Because when General Eisenhower, when he went through Germany during World War II, he noticed that the Germans had an amazing way of moving quickly. They could move freight, they could move troops, they could move supplies, and we didn't have that. And so interstates also help commerce, but the motive behind interstates really started with defending ourselves. And aren't you glad that somebody's looking out for you when you're weak and vulnerable and don't even really know it? He realized we were weak and vulnerable, and we really didn't even know it. Christmas is a, is a time where it's awesome and it's, and it's neat and it's loud and it's pretty and it's colors and it's food. But we're weak and we're vulnerable and we don't even really know it sometimes. And the end result is beautiful, but the context of it tells the story. And so I want you to open your Bible in Isaiah 9. So here's the, I'm just going to read it to you. It says, there will be, verse 1 Isaiah prophesies, there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish, talking about the people of God. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious. By the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people, verse 2 says, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness. He's talking about what Jesus will do. They will be glad in your presence. This is a prophecy about Christ. 
As with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. The rod, that is, you'll also break the rod of the oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult, a cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. We're going to deal with that in the very last part of this in a few weeks. For a child will be born unto us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. And then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this, right? So, so he's, we're talking about mighty God today. Now, you can look at mighty God and, and, and you can say, okay, yeah, wow, it's mighty God. It's, it's a great name for God. But I'll tell you, if you look at it in the context, the context tells the story. Learn when you read your Bible, you have to know the context of which it's been saying. And so, so mighty God here defined, I would say, really kind of means this, that, that mighty God is an attribute of God as one who fights for his people. That's what he's getting at. It, 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 the, the idea of a mighty God is one who, who fights. It's, it's a characteristic. These, remember I told you last week that, that when, when we think about Jesus and the names of Jesus that we, we hear him referred to as Emmanuel, Emmanuel is God with us. That is what Jesus is going to do. But here are these four attributes is actually who God is who actually he is and what he does. And, and this is a, a reflection of his very nature. An attribute of God is one who fights for his people. So mighty God, what, what is it? So remember, I told you when you read your Bible, you read it slowly, and, and you, you find that the very last part of this prophecy in Isaiah 9, verse 7, it says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. We, we, we read past that because we get lost in the wonderful counselor and the mighty God and the prince of peace and eternal father. We get lost in all of that. But the motive behind all of that is his jealousy. That is, he, he fights for his people. And so I would say it to you this way, friend. It's the jealousy of his love that is the motive driving his actions, okay? The jealousy of his love is the motive that drives his actions. Why is he mighty God? Why is he wonderful counselor? Why is he prince of peace? Why is he eternal father? It's because he fights for his people. The jealousy of his love is the motive that drives his actions. And so we're going to break that down and how that looks. The Bible tells us that those that were in darkness will see a, a great light. Now, here's the thing about fighting. The jealousy of his love drives his, his actions. See, you, the idea of a mighty God is an attribute where he fights for people. But understand, you don't fight for something unless it's being threatened, right? There's no point in fighting for something. If you're defending something... It's because it's, it's vulnerable, right? It's vulnerable. So I want, you to, I want you to do something with me for a minute, okay? I'm not going to ask you to do anything weird, all right? But I want you to try something with me. I want you to close your eyes for a minute. Everybody can do that. No cheaters. No cheaters. I want you to close your eyes for a minute. Now I want you to imagine 
as, as strange as it may feel, imagine you are physically incapable. You actually have, when you're when all the synapse and the neurons and all the things fire in your brain to tell your eyelids to open, you can't. Imagine that, and I'm not talking about blindness. Imagine that you physically cannot open your eyes even though you want to. You are trapped in darkness. You are incapable. You have no human capacity to open them. Okay, now I want you to open them lest you fall asleep on me. Because uh, when we, we're all so tired, you give a few minutes. Life at 50, I'll tell you a little tip. Life at 50, recliners aren't your friend at any time of the day. Because you may be asleep for a minute, you know. It's how overworked some of us are, right? Sometimes all of us, I think 100% of us would feel that way. When, when you are incapable of doing anything about the darkness. Look at what it says in verse 2. Those who walk in darkness will see a great light. You've heard me say it many times. Darkness cannot self-correct. Darkness cannot self-correct. Something has to ignite something to make something else happen for it to go. So when, when we look at the mighty God, how is he going? If, we're, if we are a people who needs fighting for, if, if we are a people who need to be defended, if we are a people who are vulnerable and can't fight for themselves, then what is he delivering us from and how will he do it? Why is he called mighty? Well, I would write this down. He will deliver us by his physical presence. Okay, he will deliver us by his physical presence. Did you notice that it says in verse 6, for unto us or to us a child or for us a child will be born? He will actually show up. And this is the difference about what makes Christianity so unique and so special. You see, in the, in the economy of world religions... In the economy of all world religions, it is about man, humankind, searching for God. Christianity is about God searching for you. And there's the difference. God is coming. He came to us. He's not some mystery wrapped in a riddle. He's not hiding behind a cloud. You don't have to have all these degrees to get to understand him. He actually took initiative. Now you see that for darkness to become light, something has to start because darkness can't self-correct. And so, so Jesus enters the scene physically. Don't ever say that God is hard to find. He showed up. He showed up. And, and the Bible tells us in John 14, verse 17, it says, this is what it says. It says, the world cannot accept him because it, talking about the Holy Spirit, because it neither sees him or knows him. But you know him. Why? How do you know him? Because he showed up and walked among you, Jesus. How do you know? Because I'm standing right in front of you. And he talks about the forecast of the Holy Spirit. We talked a little bit about this last week, but it says you will know him. And here's the qualifier, that he lives with you and will be in you. So you see, he doesn't just show up in his physical presence. He will deliver us with his internal presence. Those are delivering aspects too because he's given you the power to live. So write that down if you're taking notes. He's not just going to deliver his people physically. He's going to inhabit them on the inside to give you power to live out your life. So when we look at the mighty God, what is it that he's delivering us from what is it that he's delivering? If, he's, if, if we need such a mighty God, and if we're in such a state of condition that we really do need a deliverer, then what is it? I would say it this way. He will deliver us by defeating human bondage. 
Because you see, that's what Isaiah is getting at this morning. And he's very descriptive in how he's going to do it. They will see a great light. They will become glad. But he goes into a lot of description of what it is he's going to deliver us from. He, said, he talks about a yoke, and he talks about, I'm going to get to that in a minute. He talks just about a yoke, he talks about a rod, and he talks about darkness, and he talks about the need for us to go from gloom to gladness. But I believe there's a great verse. I, I, every time I read this verse, and I've read it countless times, I, I, every time I read this verse, it tells me just how much God loves me even though I needed the deliverance. Look at what it says in Colossians 2. If you're taking notes, I would read this sometimes. Remember I told you, read your Bible slowly. And when you read it slowly, you see some imagery jump off the page. And and Apostle Paul is telling us, he says, And you who were dead in your trespasses, God made you alive. Do you see God did that? No, you didn't do it. God did it. He made you alive together with him. Having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us, with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. So if you read your Bible slowly, what you see here is battle imagery. You see a a classic compare contrast. Look at what it says. You were dead in your trespasses. You were not able to open your eyes on your own, the eyes of your heart. You, You actually had no physical power to change the darkness. And it says God made you alive. Look at the other word. It says forgiven. So you got forgiven versus trespasses. You have trespasses against God. The, the idea of a, of a trespass to the, to the Jew would have meant that there was a boundary. The idea of trespasses is a little more different than sin. The Bible uses three words for the human condition, sin, trespasses, and iniquities. And, and so the, the idea of sin means you miss the target. The idea of trespasses is a little more egregious, though. The idea of a trespass is that there was a boundary for you, and you chose to step outside of it. So a sin would be like me lying Bad enough, enough to send me to hell when I, when I die because I've sinned against the holy God. Uh, lying would be a sin. I missed the mark. There was a standard and I missed it. But a trespass would be much more like me having an affair on my wife. There's a boundary marked out and I chose to, I chose to step over it. Right? And the reason I did was because of iniquities. Iniquities drives the whole thing. Iniquities are the fuel behind why we trespass and why we sin. And and so it says that we were forgiven for all of our trespasses and that he canceled what? A debt. You ever been in debt? Yeah. Even if you're one that prides yourself in making somebody Dave Ramsey would be very proud of, I can promise you, you've had huge debts. Debts of the soul. Debts of the heart. Debts of the human condition. And it said he canceled those debts that stood against us. And then it says he set aside by doing what? Nailing it to the cross. And I love this part of Colossians 2, the very end. It says he disarmed the powers. Listen, friend, it doesn't matter. It, It really doesn't matter what you think about demons. It doesn't matter what you think about dark forces. It doesn't matter what you think about satanic activity. It doesn't matter what you think about strongholds. 
It doesn't matter what you think about powerful presences and that, that float around in the air. It doesn't change the reality that they are there. I've met many Christians that almost treated the spiritual realms much like fables and fairy tales for the weak, theologically minded. And I'm telling you, if that's you, um, well, I was about to say, I'm not going to say, that would not be nice. Um, thank you, Holy Spirit, for calming my mind. I'm telling you, let's just say you're naive on the highest of levels. I don't have to be believe in gravity, but I can climb to the top of this building and it will prove itself to me. The Bible says that there are rulers and authorities in the unseen heavenlies that rule this place and he put them to open shame. Aren't you glad? He put them to open shame and he triumphed over them in the cross. That's battle language, friends. That's battle language. But that battle language shows up really in Isaiah 9 and, and he points to it. Look at what he what he says in verse 4, it says that Jesus will break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors, and then he gives an illustration, Isaiah does, as like the battle of Midian. Well, the battle of Midian was a very famous battle. Every person that, every Israelite, every person, when Isaiah quoted that prophecy, every person, you know, how some of you grew up in RAs and GAs? How many of y'all grew up in R? Raise your hands if you grew up in RAs and GAs. You have people under 40 are going, what in the world is that? You know, you, I don't even know if you can Google RAs and GAs, but you, you maybe you could. But, but all of you that grew up and going to vacation Bible school and all of you that grew up going to church, right? There's certain things. We have church language, right? We have, I can say certain things, you know, in church language and everybody that grew up in church church, you, you immediately, oh, you go back and you might, I remember that, right, right. Well, you could have said that to everybody raised in temple. Oh, the battle of Midian. Oh, yeah. See, that was about Gideon, right? It was about Gideon. And so, and, and look at what it says in, in Judges chapter 7. Look at this next verse. It says, the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand lest Israel boast, lest, lest the people of God become arrogant, that is, saying, my own hand has saved me. So if you're not familiar with the story of Gideon, what happens is God is calling his people to fight the Midianites. And the army was 22, roughly 22,000 people. And God, knowing our propensity to take trophies that were never ours to claim, said, I tell you what, let's pare the army down. Okay, can you imagine being the field generals? Hey, the Lord has told us to uh, thin out the army. Oh, okay. What are we going to? 15,000? No, keep going, fellas. Are we going to drop it? Are we going to drop it down to 10? All of you that are really good with spreadsheets and analysis, can't you see your mind going nuts right now trying to figure out redeployment? Oh, we don't have the supply chain for this. We don't have this for that. We got to move all that. Your mind's starting to move in all these supply chain numbers, and, and God says, no, just keep, keep on going. I'll tell you when to stop. And he goes from 22,000 to 300. So that no human could take credit for the victory. So when he says the battle of Midian, it, it's, it's an image that tells us 
the totality of relief that the Messiah would bring. Because you see, here's what Jesus was doing. The reason you and I need a mighty God is not because Jesus was coming to make us a better version of our best self. Jesus wasn't coming to help us self-improve. Jesus was coming because there was impossible ways, there was no possible way that we could ever improve our way out of a sinful condition. It was impossible. But knowing that we try to think, I, you know, you know, you know, on a side note, this isn't even in my notes, but I'm thinking about it, so I'm just going to say it. You know what drives me crazy as a pastor? When I hear other pastors, and I do, all, I, I do things too that I'm sure drive other pastors crazy. But I'll tell you what drives me nuts is when I hear preachers and evangelists use phrases like, Jesus came to deliver you from your hurts, habits, and hang-ups. Let me tell you something, friends. Jesus didn't go to the cross to deliver me from my hang-ups. Jesus went to the cross because I'm a sinner. Jesus went to the cross because I was powerless to do anything about it. So the battle of Midian, he's saying, I know you're going to want to take credit for this on your own, but I'm not going to let you. You know, the Bible says in Ephesians, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you on the front end, this verse is going to depress you. But, it, but look through the depression to see the love. Because you see, it is the jealousy of his love that fuels his actions, right? So look at what it says in Ephesians 2. It says, you were once dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live this way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. We were by our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. The Bible says, in the most wooden sense, we were objects of wrath. Objects of wrath. Think about being an object of wrath. He's talking to Christians, by the way. He's saying who you used to be. So that's why I'm saying push through it because you're going, oh, yes, I'm on this side of the cross. But this is who I used to be. I was, there was a time, friend, and if, if you're not in Christ yet, you need to understand. If you're on the other side of the cross, the unredeemed side of the cross, you need to understand that you are by nature an object of the wrath of God. Not because you're some awful, worthless person, but because God can't look past sin. Because before he's anything else, he's holy. And his holiness won't allow him to look past sin. And so he says, we used to be on that place in that place of our lives and so he talks about what Jesus is going to do this is the prophecy of the Messiah it says you will look at what it says here go, go to the next image here and it's, it's back to Isaiah it says you will break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders the rod of their oppressors so he gives you the imagery of a yoke and a rod this is really important there's a yoke and there's a rod now what does a yoke used to do Okay? A yoke is something that you put on, on ox or on mules or horses. You put it on, on the shoulders and it was meant to harness you, right? It was meant to hold you. It would, it would restrain you. It would go around your neck in such a way that whoever commanded you, if you weren't listening, it could physically force you and manipulate your will. That's what a yoke does. 
So our yoke is self-imposed. Don't ever forget it. Our yoke is self-imposed. Paul just said in Ephesians, we chose to defy him. That's what sin does. So that yoke and that rod, it, it, is, it is our own self-governance. It goes back to the Garden of Eden. So what happened in the Garden of Eden wasn't it just, you know, Adam and Eve had some fetish for fruit. What happened in the Garden of Eden is what happens when people say, I'm going to do it my way. And God said, okay, but it's not free. I'm going to let you have your way. And you're going to get a meal and a yoke. The dessert isn't something nice. The dessert for the meal that you want to eat is a yoke. And so what it says the Messiah will do is he will step into that picture and he will take it from a yoke, something that is used for suffering. So he will take, instead of what was a yoke on my shoulders became a cross on his. Do you hear me? The yoke that was on my shoulders became the cross on his shoulders. And that rod that he's talking about, that rod of beating, that rod of beating, it's about suffering inflicted. So in, in effect, what Jesus did, the Bible even says that when Jesus went before the courts and he was on his way to the cross, it said they beat him. So he took my beating. He took your beating. The rod of the oppressor and the heavy yoke of, of self-governance. And, and so it, for you, it may just look like, you know, oh, I, I'm just really stubborn. No, no, it, it, it really is a defiance of a holy God. Can you imagine how God must feel to create human beings and all they want to do is defy him? Right? It's called parenting in some ways. I think God gives us a picture of that. He creates something, and it's beautiful, and it's got life perfect, and, and, but it's bent. It's, the, the creation itself is bent on defiance. Something had to change that. So the yoke goes on his shoulders, the beating he stands in place. So I will tell you something to this Christian friend. You think about that. You think about the yoke that Jesus put around his neck that was your yoke. And you think about Jesus standing in a circle of men and then putting a crown of thorns on his head and pushing it into his head and beating him with a rod and then beating him with steel, cat of nine tails, ripping flesh out of his body. True story about um, Mel Gibson's movie, Passion of the Christ. Jim Caviezel told the story there's a scene where they're beating him with a cat of nine tails. It's an it's a iron ball, or, or it can be a leather ball, and it's got pieces of bone or pieces of metal. So think of a, of a ball with, with nails or metal shards coming out of it so that when it would hit into the body, it would go into the body and take flesh out with it. Right? So what Mel Gibson wanted to do in that movie was he wanted to make that as realistic as he possibly could. So they took a, a, a thick layer of steel and they put it on Jim Caviezel's back. True story. And then they put all the makeup and all the fake skin around it so that the, that the Roman soldier could actually hit him. And it could actually hit him and you would, hit, and you would see the flesh throughout. But here's what happened. There was in, in amongst the, the beating and amongst the hitting, there was one time... 
where the actor missed. And it actually went into him. And Caviezel said, the pain was so intense I, I couldn't even scream. And it only happened once. He said, I, I, the breath left my body. Can you imagine? So you think about that. The next time you turn a blind eye to sin. You think about that, moms and dads. The next time you let sin enter your household and your kids are mocking it. You think about that when you're in the corporate market room on a sales contract and somebody's wanting, somebody's wanting to fudge the numbers to get the company a little bit ahead. You think about your Jesus that stood in there and let them beat him because of that injustice. You think about that. We had to have deliverance from that. And that's what the Savior would do. Think about it. Friends, let me tell you something. The mighty God, he did not come to a manger only to stop at a cross. Uh-uh. He did not. You can glorify the manger all you want to, but he tells us right there in verses 1 and 2 that there will be no more gloom. Their gloom will be turned to gladness. They who walked in darkness will, will see a great light. Those who sat in darkness will see a great light. Our burden is going to be turned into celebration. So let me tell you, when you think about Christmas in his name, man, when you think about the name of Jesus, you're going to be singing all for the next few weeks. You're going to be driving down the road, and you're going to have the radio. You're, I mean, I've got my favorite Spotify list going, and, you know, you got all your Christmas songs. And as you, as you sing those Christmas songs and you sing through all the attributes of who Jesus is, I mean, as great as Nat King Cole and Andy Williams and all those people are, I'm just telling you, press through that for a minute, friend, and realize that the mighty God didn't just come to make a, a rough situation a little bit better. The mighty God came because it was only going to get worse. The mighty God came. When you sing out the names of Jesus, you think about what Jesus did. You know, in the book of Romans, it says this, right? In the book of Romans, it says, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Look at that. Slow down and look at that verse for a minute. If we were God's enemies, if we were by nature objects of wrath, then we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more will he be the, the one to give us the very life of God? So I don't want you to get hung up this morning because it's really easy to get hung up. All you can hear is, oh my goodness, I'm an, I'm an object of wrath. I'm an object of wrath. But friends, let me tell you something. Don't get confused. Objects of wrath are not the same thing as worthless objects. You hear me? Objects of wrath are not the same thing as worthless objects. I wrote it down so that you could just burn it into your mind. Show the next one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Objects of wrath are not worthless objects. Jesus did not die on a cross and come out of a grave because you're worthless. Go back to the reason of what a mighty God is. A mighty God, the mighty God, the Savior would be, is it's an attribute of God of the, for, for a, a description of who he is. And who he is is a, is a God that fights for his people. You see, it's the jealousy of his love 
The jealousy of his love. It says the the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The jealousy of his love is what will fuel his motivations. And what he's saying in this prophecy is that I will take objects of wrath and I will turn them into objects of affection. I will take objects of wrath and I will turn them into objects of redemption. I will take objects of wrath who are powerless to be anything else because they have defied me in their sin, but my love goes so deep and so wide and so far that I will turn them into objects of desire. That is who the mighty God is. You know, you often don't think about sharing something with somebody like a tweet or an email or sending them a sermon or sending them a podcast. You don't often think of that as missions, but it is. It's not that you have to send it to the whole world or post every single thing we do at Clearview on your feed. But if if you've heard a sermon or if you've listened to a podcast, think through your life. I mean, God, who needs to hear this? Sometimes it, it, it doesn't need to go on your Facebook page. Sometimes it needs to go on your Twitter. But sometimes just a simple text to one person can make all the difference in the world to sending them the Word of God in real time. Share it. You'd be surprised how far it goes.